you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. Yo, what's up? This is Jacoby from Papa Roach. This is Ryan Lee. This is Wes. This here. is Bob Ford. This is Rich Roll, and you're listening to Silver Guy Radio. Yo, what's up? Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to Humans for bringing us in. And thanks to you for supporting the show. Be sure to check out Humans Music if you haven't already. Those guys uh, have some awesome tracks and uh, always love supporting them. Great guys and uh, great musicians as well. So be sure to check out Humans Music. Have you checked out the I Am Sober app? If not, you can go to that soberguy.com right now and you can download it there and you can download it for free. I Am Sober is helping thousands of people just like you get sober and stay sober. Best of all, like I said before, the app is free. Uh, you can get an overview of your sobriety milestones. You can see how much money you saved. And uh, you can also get daily notifications to help keep your ass on track and headed in the right direction. I know that was a huge, uh, important tool for me is to keep some accountability and, uh, uh, keep some things organized to help keep me in the right direction. And the I am sober app will help you do just that. And then also I wanted to mention a new feature. Uh, the team just rolled out an update uh, called daily pledges, and it's a way for you to uh, take things one day at a time. You can wake up in the morning, you can make your daily pledge to stay sober. And then after that, you'll get the daily motivation and you can help track these on a calendar and you can see how many times you've done this. And uh, the idea is that if you slip up, you can still come back the next day and you can make a new pledge. So it's not, not going to kick your ass or anything and kick you out of the app or anything if you do jack up because, let's face it, it happens sometimes to the best of us. But the most important thing is that we don't give up. Uh, you can go to the IamSoberApp.com website and you can download it there. You can go to that SoberGuy.com on the right-hand side, download the app there. It's also available on the iTunes App Store or Google App Play Store. Download the I Am Sober app today, and thanks again to those guys for, uh, for partnering with Sober Guy. Uh, they're a good team over there, and uh, they're doing some phenomenal work. Um, also, wanted to mention uh, Foundations Recovery Network as well. Um, great to have them uh, sponsoring the show and being a valid resource, so uh, check those guys out. There's a ton of good resources over there if you, uh, if you, if you need anybody, yourself, your family member who's struggling, you can always go there and find more information there. All right, we're going to get to our guest today right now, and I'm super pumped to have, uh, have him today. His name is John Maybury, and John serves as Director of Public Outreach, and he's also the host of the High Sobriety Podcast for Addiction Campuses. Uh, John has a master's in counseling. He's an inventor, award-winning speaker, actor, and stuntman, and he actually has 12 years in the Screen Actors Guild. He's worked on um, NCIS, ER, 
Uh, the movie Superbad. I know some of y'all remember the movie Superbad. One of my favorites. Just some some great comedy, some uh, some some great stuff in that one. Um, his work has been featured in People Magazine, USA Today, and Access Hollywood. And he's also completed in triathlons. And you might say, oh well, a triathlon. Yeah, that's hard work. Um, but it's a triathlon. Well. John's accomplished all these following a leg amputation from a car accident, which also killed a friend of his. Um, and this was while he was attending college in Texas. And uh, now John lives in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, with his wife of 13 years and their three children. So uh, it's really great to have him today. And John, I just want to welcome you to Sober Guy Radio. Hey, thank you so much, Shane, for having me. It is an uh, absolute honor to, uh, to be here. So thank, thanks so much. Yeah, I'm pumped that you reached out, man. Um, I'm glad we're connected and we got we got a chance to speak a little bit before we got started today. And I think at the end you said something, you know, it's it's really about helping people and spreading the good word and uh, getting out there to provide resources for others. So um, it's great to see you doing that. And um, I'm proud to be a part of this community doing the same thing. And it's, it's going to be great to chat today. Let's kind of start with you, man. Um, uh, take us back to what life was like um, back in the day when, when you were when you were struggling with addiction and, and maybe even if you want before that just tell us a little bit about yourself John yeah yeah so um, I my story definitely has some twists and turns in it as you explained you know some of the intro there but there's even more below the surface that that um, I didn't know for gosh maybe 30 years of my life of things that went back to my childhood that a lot of people don't take into account when they see somebody struggling with addiction or a mental health issue, um, or maybe it's uh, obesity or overweight. Uh, a lot of times there's things that set in in childhood that, um, pre, you know, predispose someone to later on becoming addicted or, uh, reaching out to, you know, filling themselves, filling a hole inside of their soul with something outside of themselves that, you know, ends up becoming a, a chronic, yeah. um, you know, issue for them and, and, you know, cause them to experience major consequences later in life. Um, to, to, in short, my childhood was really easy. I mean, I just had a, I had a really easy childhood growing up in San Antonio, Texas, had loving parents, loving home, both grandparents, you know, always, you know, married and, um, parents married, had, uh, an older brother. And I just had an easy life. I mean, everything was provided for me, had everything I, I needed, most of what I wanted and, um, got through high school, ended up getting, uh, class clown senior year i got class clown most outgoing most school spirited and best personality i mean i was just uh, i think i was really more annoying than um friendly <laughs> <laughs> i thought i was trying to be everybody's friend and not uh, looking back on it, i was like man, i think i was just like uh, i was probably annoying and i was i was a nerd i was nerdy but i didn't consider myself nerdy i always wanted to be part of the cool crowd and so i was willing to be you know persuaded to to you know do things that i wasn't comfortable doing and once you know friends started drinking and smoking uh, later, you know, later years in high school, I, I pushed it off for as long as I could, but senior year finally succumbed to the, uh, peer pressure. And once that alcohol, once that alcohol got in my system, it was like, Oh my gosh, yeah. a sense of calmness, just this rush of calmness of like, Oh, now I can cope with life. And it gave me this sense of confidence that I, I, I thought I naturally had, but I, I was really that, um, the personality that in your face annoyingness that I carried with me of getting class clown and most outgoing, most school spirited was really driven through fear. Yeah. And, um, but once I had that alcohol, it was like, man, all that fear was gone and I could just be. And, um, I, I rode that train through college and through the, you know, doing the fraternity thing, not experiencing a whole lot of consequences. Um, <clears throat> but once I had my car accident, my senior year in, in college, it was, 
that opened up the door to, um, you know, over a decade of, of addiction. <clears throat> so, and, uh, what, so what, what happened with the car accident? Can you go into, uh, in, into a little more detail about that? Yeah. So we were, there was to set the stage, my life coming out of, of high school was great. was perfect. Go into college. I mean, again, easy, easy go at college. My senior year, I had earned a full ride scholarship. Um, I was a communications major at Baylor university and was uh, doing video work for the athletic staff. So I was filming football games and basketball games and practices. And I got a full ride scholarship my senior year for it. I was really proud of that. Um, I was dating um, one of the uh, cheerleaders. I was a fraternity uh, social chair of our fraternity. Hmm. I had all going. Uh, everything was set. Stage was set going into my senior year. That everything was I was riding high. And uh, coming, I had set up the spring break trip. And there was about 45 people. Uh, fraternity brothers and friends and girlfriends and things. And so a group of 45 of us go on this cruise through the Caribbean and we left out of New Orleans. We go on this, you know, booze cruise for four or five days. And we, I got to go for free since I set the trip up. I mean, couldn't have been going any better. And we're in a car driving back from New Orleans, back to Waco and just, uh, nobody was drinking or driving beautiful day out and tire blows out and a friend's SUV going. She had the cruise set on 70 driver couldn't have done anything better couldn't have been doing anything differently tire blows out and we rolled 10 times across the interstate um across the median across the other side of the interstate into a field on the other side and um when that i mean i was conscious the whole time i saw it happening i thought this is it this i mean i I imagine like life and i imagine my film like a or my life like a film reel like an old film reel and i was just waiting for the film reel to run out like the Damn. You know, that, like, like the end of the film to run, run out, and I was just waiting for everything to go to black. And instead of everything going to black, I, you know, I opened my eyes as the car lands upside down in the field, and I'm alive. And I'm thinking, crap, this thing's going to blow up. Yeah. In the movies, yeah. when a car rolls ten times, it blows up. Yeah. So I tried to stand up. I put my legs out the window to stand up, and I could see the bottom of my right foot. It was severed. The ankle was severed halfway across, halfway mm-hmm. around on the inside. Oh and so the, 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 my foot wrapped around the outside of my shin and I could oh, see the bottom fuck. of my foot. So as I throw myself out, my foot's dangling behind me and I'm just dragging with my hands. I'm dragging myself away from the car to, to you know, where were you sitting? Not, were you in the back seat or the front? I was a back seat passenger side. And, and as that, as that SUV is rolling, um, is that like, would you describe it as almost like slow motion? Cause I've heard that before. Yeah, like, yeah. You just feel like your life's yeah. flashing before your eyes and it's like this slow motion part in the film, you know, if it was absolutely, absolutely. Time just slows down, you know, Gosh. everything just, you're in this bubble and I really couldn't hear sounds or anything. I don't really recall sounds or yeah. specifics of the metal crashing, but knowing all that was happening around me, it was this crap, man. This is, this thing is really happening. And, um, yeah, you do go into this like trance of a world and everything just slows yeah. down that those seven seconds probably, yeah, you know, expanded out to what would seem like, you know, minutes. Yeah. So, so you get out and, and you notice that basically your, your, your foot's folded, folded up and you kind of drag yourself away. What, what happens from there? So I look back and my three friends are still in the car. And so I'm sitting there and I'm going, if this thing blows up and I'm sitting here watching my friends and I didn't do anything. I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Yeah. So I said, I'm going in. If that thing, and I consciously made that decision. If that thing blows up and and I'm helping, at least I can say I was helping. 
So I was willing to sacrifice for, you know, to, to save some people. And, um, yeah, I mean, and then I think anybody in that situation would probably do the same thing. You're just, the adrenaline's going, you don't think about the pain. Yeah. You just think of your, you know, life and death situation. You do what you got to do, fight or flight. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't, uh, any, I think anybody in this situation would have, would have done the same thing. So crawl back in, uh, got one friend out and then, um, my two friends up front, one was tending to the driver, the driver, her name was Ashley Furman. And, um, she was 19 years old and she was pinned in from head trauma and her boyfriend was up front Spence and he was, uh, tending to her. So I was like, okay, Spence has got her. I'm getting, I'm getting back out. And, um, they ended up having to cut Ashley out and, uh, land a helicopter on the side of I-45 outside of Houston. I mean, helicopter on the side of the interstate and the whole deal. And, um, she passed away in the helicopters. They, they didn't get her to the hospital to, to get help. Um, and so, here I am on the side of the road. Life was beautiful. Life was beautiful a half hour before. God, you know, so crazy, full ride man. scholarship, spring break, <sighs> had everything going for me. And then here it is a whole new, you know, world that I was not prepared to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I ended up going into several surgeries just to kind of save my foot to, to try to piece it back together. And, uh, they moved me from college. That was in college station. And then they ended up moving me home to San Antonio. I had to basically drop out of school, move in with mom and dad. Uh, I have a hospital bed in my dad's office at home. You know, mom cleaning out my, my urinals and my catheter mm. and not being able to go to the bathroom on my own. And, okay. uh, you know, in comes uh, painkillers. You know, obviously a, a necessary uh, tool at that point in time, and I needed it. Uh, but I ended up having 14 surgeries that year. So it was just ongoing pain, ongoing struggles, ongoing infections is really what what came down to is infections kept coming back. And so I'd get better. I'd go through physical therapy. I'd go back to school, you know, start attending classes again. Infection would sit in. I'd have to come back, drive home three hours, have another surgery, recuperate from that, get back to school. And so it was just this, this year of just complete turmoil and, and ups and downs. So finally got to a point where it was like, they want to do bone graft, take bone out of my hip and move it around. And I was like, man, I told myself at the side of the accident. I was like, they're going to cut my foot off. This thing is, there's no way they can save this thing. Oh, so you, you, and, you knew, you kind of already knew when, when yeah, I, I was like, man, this is, this doesn't look good. I didn't think yeah. they were going to be able to save it. Yeah. So we tried, tried a year and you know, I was just like, man, I, I think, I wonder if I might be better letting it go. And so I ended up talking to, I was able to talk to a couple of amputees uh, that were local to San Antonio and it was, you know, seeing them and seeing their quality of life. I was like, I think I'm gonna be better off letting this thing go. And so I made that tough decision one, one, one day to just, mom, dad, let's cut this thing off. Let's move on. And um, yeah, it's not like <laughs> you can't take that one back. You know, it's not like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, six months later, you're like, oh, I kind of want to go back. Can, I, can we put that thing back on? Yeah. Um, but it was definitely the right decision for me. But here's where I went into it naively, thinking I was going to cut the problem off. And, I think, and this carries over to recovery and to, to addiction and, and folks that I think that folks might be able to relate to is the problems, the drinking, let me stop the drinking and life's going to be okay. Yeah. I kind of, I was like, well, the problems, the, the foot, the problem is all the pain in the foot. Let me cut that off and I'm going to move on and be okay. And so that's how I went into it. And yet there was all the emotional, the turmoil and that, that fear and the anxiety and the, you know, all the effects of the PTSD and, um, you know, the, the terror and those feelings that I never dealt with in, in the, through the yeah. course of the accident and that year afterwards, um, followed me. 
And even though I cut the leg off and moved on and started doing triathlons and grad school and all these other, you know, skydiving and all these things I went and did, I still had these underlining issues that, that if you don't resolve them or you don't dig and, and, and address them, yeah. they can come back and come back and haunt you later I've, on. Uh, I've heard about, um, like survivor's guilt. Did you have any, did you experience that? I mean, was that part of the emotional, you know, ro- roller coaster of losing your friend and, and maybe questioning like, God, like why, why did I survive? Like, why did, why did she die? Why did I live? Like, is there anything there? I didn't know. I didn't really deal with that being, um, being brought up in, in a, in a Christian home. I, I, I did have a, an understanding that, or I felt I had an understanding that, you know, was, there's God, there's purpose behind it. Yeah. What I did though, uh, over the years is I, I felt guilty for not doing more positive work with it. Hmm. Um, I did a lot of self-serving, you know, when I, moved out to grad school and started getting, getting on TV and things like that and doing the movie things. It was more, that was so ego driven. And so look at me, look at me, um, where, you know, God really had to bring me down to (laughs) my higher power had to bring me down to my knees through, through my, my process of, of getting sober to help me understand that it's not about me. It's about, it's about others. It's about, it's about my higher powers, you know, plan for my life and not my own. Um, so I did, so I dealt with guilt of, of man, yeah, my friend died and here I am alive and I, all I'm doing is serving myself huh. and I'm only caring about myself and I'm not even taking my, my wife and kids, you know, needs in, into consideration and, and, you know, driving them around intoxicated and, and things of that nature that that's where I felt guilt about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Was there something that, that stands out to you that was kind of a turning point for that? Um, you know, that I guess the selfishness aspect of it uh it's easy to get locked into that i mean i know for me um i had a lot of good things in my life but i couldn't see any of them i could only focus on me and and all the shit that i didn't have or or i didn't um you know wasn't accomplishing or anything like that was that a was that an aspect you know for you in the selfishness part and how did you how did you flip that around yeah so really what brought that to light was um uh, it was probably my second or third round of treatment. Went to this treatment center that we, they called it a rehab for big boys, and it was for chronic relapsers. And it was it was the way kind of twelve um, step work was originally done in the very beginnings. And it was life or death. You're gonna this disease will kill you if you don't face your truths. Yeah. And I think a lot of treatment centers nowadays cater to um, you know making sure everybody's comfortable and making sure they don't, you know, rock the boat too much because people pay a lot of money for it. So they don't want you to leave. So they, you know, cater to your, your every need as best they can, which is fine. Um, but this treatment center did it differently. They don't, they didn't care. They're like, if you want to leave, go ahead, but you know, you have a good chance of dying if you don't. So their approach was you had to do the 12, you had to do steps one through seven before you could, um, before they suggested that you had a a chance to, um, leave. (laughs) And so it's step one, in my first round of treatment, I went to this high-end celebrity place in Arizona, and step one, I did in front of my trauma group, and it took me about 45 minutes, and it was about seven questions. <laughs> this step one was 70 questions, and it took me 12 hours to present in front of the group. It was just a men's program. There's about 12 or 15 guys in it. And so you sit in this chair, and you have the guys around in the circle and chairs. You had this table in the middle of the circular room with a, a stuffed rattlesnake with its fangs facing you. And then on right behind that was the counselor. Uh-huh. So you have to look at this snake that's staring at you while you're answering your questions. And the counselor's going, all right, step, you know, number one, what's your answer? Yeah. You know, you answer and then you just, you go through it. And then what happens is our disease, like we, we lie to ourselves or I lied to myself for so long. I didn't know I was lying to myself. 
Yeah. You know, and so the group would help pick that out for you and say, hey, look, on number 37, you said this. And on 38, you're saying this. What are you effing lying about? Wow. Nah, hey, I'm, you know, then you're caught off. I'm caught off guard. Going, what are, you, what are you talking about? No, this is this is my answer. This is how I always answered this, you know, this kinds of thing when this happens in my life. And they're like, no, dude, you're lying to yourself. You know that? So where my turning point was, all this to say my turning point from for kind of the ego and the, and the selfishness that um, I was so entrenched in came when I was doing step two. Uh-huh. About halfway through it, the counselor, he just threw his book down. And he goes, look, John, I'm going to tell you something that nobody out there on the outside is going to tell you. But he said, all you are when you're in active addiction and alcoholism is a crippled effing drunk. Damn. That's, that's pretty like, brutal. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here going, <laughs> you know, I've lost my leg and I've yeah. lost my brother. I found my brother dead from an overdose. Like I've got these you know, stories and excuses. And he's like, you're going to be buried on next to your brother. By the end of this year, if you don't accept the fact that you're just a crippled effing drunk like anybody else, wow. you know, you're not special, Mr. Hollywood. Yeah. You're not special, you know, because you've been to the Playboy Mansion. Nobody cares when you're buried, you know. So, so that just, was a big turning wow, point. Wow, man. So just like straight brutal honesty, and that's what it took to kind of break down yes. that wall for you. Yeah, because I've been babied, you know, kind of my whole life. And like I said, you know, I had a really easy, you know, easy go at things. So I need yeah. somebody to just, just shake me, you know, just just rattle me a little bit. Yeah. And um, and I needed that at that point in time. And, I, you know, I still do sometimes. <laughs> it, it's so it's so crazy to me, like how how many um, different stories there are out there of different upbringings. Like some some people had just absolutely terrible upbringings as children. And some people just had the normal, you know, normal, good, pretty much all American upbringings. And it, it, it really, I think for, for me, at least the way I understand it, it's just a great example of like alcoholism addiction. It doesn't really discriminate like against anybody, no matter what your career is or what your background is. Um, we all have that same thing in common. And, um, I think one of the other things that goes hand in hand with that is, is just the denial aspect of it. And it sounds like the denial aspect for you was, was pretty deep. Yes, yes. You know, I grew up in a family. My, my grandfather was a was a famous Baptist pre- Southern Baptist preacher and personal friends of Billy Graham. And so I, I kind of grew up in that environment. And there was a, a lot of undertones in my upbringing on both sides of my family, my mom and dad's side, both of um, you don't really talk about the truth. Don't really tell people yeah. what's really going on. Put on the facade like everything's OK. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't nobody ever sat down with me and said, you need to make sure that everything looks fine on the outside. But it was, you know, you, you know, you just you pick up on things as you know, kids pick up on things. And so it was just kind of uh, um, ingrained in me to just kind of let don't let anybody know what's really going on because we don't want to look bad. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. this, this is a good time for me to bring up what I initially uh, started talking about was childhood, childhood trauma. And it took me multiple rounds of treatment, you know. $80,000 in, you know, paying for this stuff, paying for therapies and whatever I could try to get to the root of my issues. And I kept relapsing. And I, I finally went, you know, look, I'm dealing with trauma. I need to go to a trauma specific therapist. I need to go to a psychiatrist that deals with just trauma to give me me- who deals with trauma and addiction. So I make sure I get on the right meds and I get the right approach. So once I did that, that opened up this, uh, the doors to, childhood stuff that I had no idea ever existed. And here's how it came about is I called the trauma therapist, the counselor on the phone um, for an f- initial phone consultation before he went into her office. And 10 minutes into my story, you know, lost my leg, lost my brother, um, so on and so forth. And she was like, great, thank you for telling me that stuff, but I'm really not concerned about your friend dying, your leg getting cut off, or you finding your brother dead from no overdose. Hmm. 
She said, what I'm concerned about is what happened to you as a kid. And that's that I got rattled with that going yeah. back again to like, man, that route, nobody's ever asked me what happened as a child. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I had mm-hmm. a, I didn't say anything about my childhood. And she goes, I know you didn't, but what happened? And I said, nothing. I had a really good childhood. And she goes, I'm sure you did. What happened? And I just sat there in silence. Like, what is she talking about? This lady's crazy. And I threw out the only thing I could think of was I had some ear surgeries as a kid, but that was such a long time ago. That was not that big a deal. And she said, boom. When you come in, that's where we're starting because I guarantee that's where your problem started. And I get off the phone. I tell my wife, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to this lady. Like she's just – she's cool. You know, she's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Sounds crazy. <laughs> what are you talking about? So yeah. I go in. Long story short, we go in. She gives me some, a blank piece of paper and crayons. And my – I mean I've, I've, you know, I've met some of the biggest people in Hollywood. I've, I've traveled the world. I've been in Rio de Janeiro on New Year's. I've been in Okinawa for you know all kinds of – Crazy stuff I've been able to do. I've been to Eiffel Tower at sunset multiple times. And here I am sitting in this cold office of a, this counselor that – I mean the, the cold brick office that I was in was just not very welcoming. And she sits down. She has this frizzy hair, and she gives me some crayons. And I'm like, what has my life been reduced to? But I'll tell you what. Like you said like you said in your intro, you know, there's you just can't give up. Yeah. Some people – you may have a slip. You may mess up. You may try something, and it may go nowhere. Don't give up. Try a different approach. So I was willing to try something new. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll trust the process and let me see what I can come up with. She said, what do you remember about your first surgery? So I start, you know, I can't draw. I, I, I get stick figures. She didn't care. Long story short, over about five sessions, we come up with this storyboard of about nine or ten uh, pieces of paper. Push it up on the wall and she has me tell me – she has me tell her the story. So I'm getting it out of my head. I'm writing it down on paper. I'm putting it up. I'm looking at it and I'm retelling the story. From afar, and I'm re- I'm able to retell the story outside of it, so it's not a part of me. It's yeah. it's uh, you know, and so come to find out, since I since I had six ear surgeries as a kid from ages like six to fifteen, I have a transplanted eardrum and the three bones in my left ear are prosthetic bones, and I had I had to fly out of state for the surgery. Come to find out, I felt from early childhood from these surgeries, I felt defective. I always felt insecure. I always felt fearful of something bad happening. I wasn't good enough. I was irreparable. I'm broken, and there's nobody else knows about it. And so I covered up for it. And you go to my high school, my senior year in high school, I was most outgoing, most school spirited, best personality, and, and class clown. And that was a complete compensation for how wow. fearful and insecure, and you know, um, all these other feelings that I had been ingrained in my psyche and in a, you know on a cellular level, I believe, since my childhood. And so she was like, I don't care how much work you do on your on the traumas that happen later on in your life. If you never went back and processed this early stuff, you would have always had those you know those under undertones in your life of you know that that's that itch underneath the skin of man, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be, I'm never going to be fixable. And then all that happened later on when I had the car accident, and my brother's death was it just it just exacerbated what was already there. Yeah. So I already had, you know, the groundwork was laid early on of, of being fearful and scared and um, insecure. And, it, and, and then all, these it, bigger things happened. It just poof, opened up the floodgates. Well, man, it's so crazy, too, how, it, how this all came up. And it was something that you <clears throat> almost didn't even remember at first and found so insignificant, but was really, like you said, it, it laid the foundation for all the events that happened later on in your life. Yeah, and you know, so I tell people this. Whenever I go do talks, I always talk about childhood trauma to let people know. I mean, it doesn't have to be some major, you know, you know, molestation or, or physical abuse. 
Um, it could be, you know, it could be emotional abuse. It could, there's big T trauma, you know, like a car accident or, you know, seeing somebody die. And then there's little T traumas that people don't realize, you know, um, it could be, uh, the fact that your parents never showed up for your glee club, you know, performances <laughs> or your, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever it was, they were never involved in your life. And that, and, and, and you carried that with you and that effect negatively affected you. It's like death from a million paper cuts. It may not be one big thing, but it could be a, I talked to one guy and he said his stuff goes back to his childhood. He moved around all the time. He was a, he was a child of a uh, military uh, father. So they uh-huh. moved around a lot. So he didn't have like one major trauma, but he had all these little, you know, friends that he would meet and then they would leave his life and all these little like, uh, you know, occurrences that happened through moving around as a child that left him feeling insecure and, and um, you know, friendless. Yeah. And that's where, that's where his, you know, kind of addiction um, really took hold. It was going back to going back to those instances as, as a child of, of constantly being being uprooted from a, from a safe place. And well, I'm I'm like I'm like so dialed into this this um, this conversation as a whole, but this topic in general too. And and I think that um, if anyone out there listening is feeling like me right now, um, you know, I think all of us would question. Well, man, you know, what it, what kind of things did I go through as a child that maybe I'm not recognizing? And so I guess my my question for you um, is, what are some things you know for for people out there listening? Um, that they may be able to start getting on a path to, to answering some of these questions about childhood trauma. Yeah. I mean, um, find a, find a therapist in your area, go talk to somebody. That's something you, you can't recover from, uh, these things alone. And we try to, you know, I tried for over a decade to try to do it. And I got this, I got this, I got this. And I finally, you know, um, you gotta reach out for help. And again, I went to, I was going to like a general counselor, general psychologist and general psychiatrist, but it wasn't until I was like, you know, I'm dealing with trauma. I'm going to go to a trauma specific person. That really helped was to hone in on what you're dealing with. So if yeah. you uh, are maybe going through a divorce and your drinking started because you went, you know, going through marital issues, go to somebody that specializes in marital issues. Maybe it's your church pastor. Um, but um, find, finding a good therapist is, is key. You're finding a good person to go talk to is key. Um, and then being, um, uh, being willing to try new things, being willing to get uncomfortable therapy and counseling is not supposed to be like, not supposed to, to me. I always thought like, Oh, when I go, I'm going to feel better. Most of the time when I had left, I felt worse, hmm. but how many times do you leave the gym? It's like working out a muscle. How many times do you leave the gym feeling, you know, completely refreshed and feeling, you know, w- you know, feeling perfect when you walk out of the gym after a great workout. Yeah. A lot of times it's the, it's the day, you know, it's in the, the couple days after the soreness wears off that you're like, now I feel more confident. Now I, now <laughs> yeah. I fit in my jeans a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, so you gotta be willing to go and get uncomfortable. Um, and that's I think okay. You, I think you just described too delayed gratification in, in its own sense, because I know for, for me that, um, you know, that immediate gratification, I want that what I want and I want it now. Uh, that's been a hard process to learn over time is to be patient and to sit back and know that I actually got to put the work in to get things accomplished that I want and, and be patient with it and work through the hard things. Um, it's not just going to come to me easily and I might not feel the benefit of those things till later on when I'm not even expecting them. But once, you know, I, I kind of gra- grasp the concept of that, it's been a lot easier for me, um, you know, through recovery and just through life in general to really hone in and put the work into to something that I, that I find, um, you know, that I enjoy to do or that I'm passionate about or that I want to accomplish. Maybe it's a, a specific goal or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's a process. 
And I, I use the analogy of working out, you know, all the time with, with dealing with emotional and, and trauma stuff is, yeah. you, you know, you don't, you go to the gym, you don't work out one or two times and, you know, reach your goal. You got to go time and time and you got to go several times a week, you know, to the gym, you know, whatever it is to, to really push yourself. And it's over. And all of a sudden you look back a couple months later and you're like, wow, now I can really tell a difference. Yeah. And it's just, it's the same way with, um, with dealing with your, with your feelings and emotions is sometimes you got to go in and, and, and work out those muscles you haven't worked out maybe ever. Yeah. Um, but specifically a couple of things that really helped me out, uh, were a couple of modalities was EMDR. If anybody's interested in dealing with, uh, looking at trauma and processing trauma more quickly and more efficiently, uh, there's been a lot of success in people doing uh, a technique called EMDR. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or reprogramming. Um, and then another one is brain spotting. Brain spotting is kind of hard to find, but if you look for a therapist in your area that offers brain spotting, um, that was really beneficial for me as well, mm. as opposed to just the general sit down on the couch and tell me your problems. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes that can work for folks, but if you're dealing with long-term, long-standing, deep-rooted uh, trauma, EMDR and brain spotting can be uh, really good. And then the really the number one thing that's helped me more than anything is meditation. Huh. I nice. always thought meditation was weird, and that's for the you know crazy Californians. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> There's definitely uh, some crazies out here, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. But meditation, what's great is it's free or, you know, I mean, it's, you don't have to, it's not, you know, there's no medicine involved. You don't have to drive anywhere a lot yeah. of time. You know, I mean, you can be a part of a group and, and go join a group and, and get some help. But meditation is something I can do on, I did it before a phone call today. Hey God, just help me slow down a little bit so I can, you know, be present, um, for this mm -hmm. call and for you and, and the work that you're doing and, and help me be available to help others. So, um, <laughs> dude, that's so awesome. I hope that we were doing that at exactly the same time. Cause I'm not shitting you about, um, you know, three minutes before we started, I do the same thing. I say a quick prayer, like God, just help <laughs> you use me as a vessel. Like, you know, it's your, I'm, I give this up to you as an offering, help this conversation, help some people out that same thing, man. And it's so effective, you know, it's so yes. effective. It's just this, this piece that, um, that comes over me when I can get in that state. It's just so much better than that anxiety ridden, like fleshy state that I can get into, you know, dude, crazy. isn't that crazy that, that people like you and I who are so far off the charts and people had wrote <laughs> us off. My wife yeah. has met with an, you know, my wife goes and meets with an attorney saying I'm done with this guy. Oh, and then she finds out she's pregnant when I was in rehab. Oh, wow. and, um, so it's the only reason we're still married <laughs> is she was pregnant as I got, went into, went into, uh, my last rehab stance and, um, our daughter's three and a half years old. And by the grace of God, um, uh, we're, we're still, she's stuck with me and we're still here. <laughs> but the fact that yeah, awesome. people like you and I can be so far off the charts and be written off by our family members and friends and, and employers, but yeah. to be able to say, dude, we can sit down. Now we're actually saying prayers before we have a phone conversation. It's, it's crazy, so crazy. Man. Um, well, we, John, we got, we got about 10, seven, 10 minutes left. And, um, I want to, I want to, uh, wrap this thing up here shortly, but I, I want to do two things. I want to, I want to dumb this conversation down and I don't mean that, uh, it, with, with any offensiveness there, but I want to talk about super bad for a minute. We got to get into a little bit of super bad because <laughs> McLovin and that whole movie, man, I remember watching that movie when it first, what was that? Like 2007, maybe seven. Yeah. 2007. Yeah. Yep. I remember watching that movie and just, I mean, that was that was the business at that time man it was there's there some 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 great scenes in there and some some great comedy in that movie um and then of course i want to jump in you know at the end and wrap this up and i want you to talk about what you know what life is really like today and what kind of um recovery program you're working and stuff too but before we get there can, can you touch on super bad what that was like and um just did you have some fun on that like what, what was that like for oh you? yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that was the best, that was the funnest project I got to work on um, by far. Uh, those guys are just hilarious. I mean, from start to finish, those, you know, Seth Rogen and, and Joan Hill, they're just, I mean, they're like big, they're kids dealing with <laughs> massive budgets. I mean, yeah. <laughs> millions and millions of dollars in these budgets, and they're just a bunch of kids just, you know, having fun. And, um, and it started, let's see, we get on, we go and you park in the parking lot, and we get in the van to ride to the set. And uh, my scene, uh, for those of you who don't know, I've got a, a, I'm the amputee that runs past Jonah uh, on a, it's a track scene. It's in like first ten minutes early on, and I just run by him as he's huffing and puffing. And they're like, have the, let's have the amputee run by and yell pussy. So that's my line. It's so funny, man. It's my claim to fame. It's so classic, bro. I love it, man. I love it. that's just great. Dude, so yeah, I never thought that uh, that would have been, you know, growing up. Man, I think I'm going to be on a major Hollywood set with, you know, a one-legged guy running past a big, a big star yelling, "Pussy!" <laughs> but you know, oh my life gosh. brings you what it brings you, and you, you take take what you have and, and run with it. So that's what I was doing. And uh, so uh, we get in the van. It's me and Jonah, and I don't know a couple other people. And, and Jonah tells a story. I love telling the story. He goes, uh, "Yeah, so I got this friend, and uh, he used to just uh, get high all the time." And whenever he'd smoke, he'd, his eyes would get you know bloodshot. His eyes would get you know dried out. And it wasn't until then that he would realize, oh crap, man, I forgot to get my contacts again. <laughs> so now he's in talk, now he's now he's high. He doesn't want to drive, so he's like, man, I'll just have to go get him tomorrow. And then the next day would roll around, he'd light up, and you know eyes would set in, and start getting bloodshot. Crap, I forgot my contacts. So he's sitting one day, and he's like, man, if somebody could just deliver them to me, that would be awesome. <laughs> so apparently, that's the guy that came up with one eight hundred contacts. No way. And Jonas, yeah, he's like, dude, he's a great friend of mine. We hang out all the time. So I don't know if the story, I've never, you know, looked it up to see if it's actually true or not, but <laughs> it makes for a good story. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of how, how simple it is. It's pretty damn genius at the same time. It's like, dude, if I just deliver my contacts, I wouldn't have to drive anywhere. I, and and I can guys, just sit by and get high all day and like you can deliver my contacts and I can have him pick up, a, you know, a, some snacks maybe on the way. And there it is. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. Man, that's so classic, man. So that story. And then uh, one other one I like telling is so we shoot my scene, run past them on the track, and we, we're done with shooting that. And then they're shooting some of the soccer scenes. There's mm -hmm. a, a soccer scene where Jonah and, and Michael, Sarah are, are talking in the middle of soccer practice, and the ball's kind of, you know, coming by them. And Jonah or Michael, one of them, kicks the ball out of the way. And you have all the kids, you have all the, you know, high school kids around them, you know, just yelling obscenities, you know, you know, a hole, you know, dickhead, <laughs> whatever they say. Yeah. And so I, I'm off just sitting around. And all of a sudden, you hear Jonah after uh, after they sh shoot one of the one of the scenes. There, you hear Jonah just screaming at the top of his lungs, going, "Shut it down! Shut everything down! I'm effing serious!" <laughs> and so they had like the behind the keen, you know, behind the scenes camera shooting, and you know, all the stuff's going on. And Jonah's like yelling for everything to just stop. So everybody just stops what they're doing, you know, wardrobe and craft services, and everybody just you, know, you can hear like a pin drop. You know, what the heck's going on? This isn't normal. And Jonah goes. Somebody said something to him. One of the kids was just doing what he was supposed to be doing. And Jonah goes, who was it that called me? And I, I don't know what name it was, but somebody called him some name. And he goes, who was it that called me that? And this little Hispanic kid, this little like scrawny <laughs> little Hispanic kid was like, uh, that was me. And Jonah good up in his face and was like, I don't care what you call me. You call me any name in the book, but you never, ever call me that name. <laughs> Damn. And everybody just – everybody stops in silence and he's just this you know long, long pause. And then he goes, man, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, guys. <laughs> oh, man. And so, 
everybody on set's just cracking up laughing, going, oh, my gosh, man, yeah, that was great. Poor kid. The little kid ran off, like, in tears, like, crying. Man. And could you imagine, like, you know, the big star comes up and calls you out in the middle of a scene in front of, you know, a couple hundred people and says, you call me anything but not that. And he's like, I'm just kidding, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Jonah, I mean, Jonah's, like, super nice guy. I mean, like, good heart. Being raised in, in Cal- you know, in, in L.A. in the scene. I was surprised at how down to earth he was. Yeah. But I mean, afterwards he felt he was like really distraught about it. Cause he was like, dude, I should have told the guy. Uh, he's like, man, I should have told, I should let him in on it before I did that. Um, so he really took it personal. Um, and I, uh, that seems like I'm part, sure. like, like part of, um, you know, you kind of talked about it at the beginning, just a bunch of young guys with huge budgets having fun. And so you have that ability to have, have fun, to laugh, to um, play some jokes, some pranks like that type of thing. So yeah, so John, thanks for uh, giving us a little insight into into the movie Superbad. It's always cool to hear some of the inside takes and stories and stuff. Um, really appreciate that. Um, let's wrap this thing up now. And what does recovery look like for you today? Um, what has that brought to your life? And what does your program consist of on on a daily basis? Man, so today, today I have problems. You know, these days. I still have problems. I still have things I have to deal with. I still have things that, you know, come at me that I, I don't want to deal with. And I sometimes think I can't deal with on my own. Um, and that's, that's part of going through recoveries. It's kind of like uh, going back to when, let me cut my leg off. My, my leg was the problem. All those 14 surgeries was, hmm. you know, should have repaired it. Uh, let me cut the problem off and let me move on. Well, all I did was cut the physical part off, but I still, I still had all that crap going on underneath the surface I never dealt with. Yeah. And so in recovery, it's like, you know, um, you remove the, the drugs and alcohol, and I'm like a like a. If you take my pacifier away from my daughter, what's going to happen? If you take her blankie away, she's going to freak out crying, you know, because that's her safe. That's her, you know, that's her safety. Yeah. And so when you remove drugs and alcohol from somebody, the problems don't, don't just go away. Life's problems don't just magically go away. Sometimes they can actually get worse because now I have to feel. Now I have to actually feel through these issues, you know, yeah. with marital problems or financial issues or you know job issues or lack of job issues. So, um, you know, today I still have problems. Life isn't just like all of a sudden easy. Um, you know, it still stresses with kids and the holidays and family and, and all that stuff, but I'm not going through it alone. That's, that's the biggest difference is, is I have, um, people that I can talk to openly. I have a sponsor that I can call. I have 12 step, you know, group meetings that I get to go to and notice the word I use. I don't say that I have to go to that. I get to go to, hmm. and that would, that did that would, man, yeah. for the first three or four years of attending uh, support group meetings. Yeah, I didn't want to go. I thought that was for somebody else. I'm like, I'm too good for that. My yeah. ego is no, that that's for, you know, people like my, my crazy uncles that, you know, <laughs> that's not for me, but man, I get to go to, I get to go to support group meetings these days. I get to be surrounded by, by people who actually, you know, care about what's going on in my life. Um, and so, um, it's just a blessing. It's a blessing to be in a, in a recovery program and to work. I get to work at addiction campuses, you know, we've got a, a network of, uh, of treatment centers around the country and, um, you know, feel we do, do really great work. And through that, through my opportunity of working in addiction campuses, when I stay sober, I don't get fired. Um, I get promoted. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird how that works. <laughs> that they weird, offered, yeah. they offered me a podcast, you know, yeah. so now I get to do what, what you're doing. I get to, I get to interview, you know, great folks, uh, all the time. I've had a couple of members of uh, the band corn on and, um, yeah, I saw uh, that you had, um, uh, What's his, head, his we've had head and yeah. uh, and Ray Ray Luzier's a, a good friend of mine. He's the drummer. Um, he's actually a neighbor of mine. Nice. Um, 
So I've had him on. Um, a guy from Three Doors Down, Todd Harrell, uh, he actually killed a guy uh, driving in Nashville. He killed a guy driving under the influence. And wow. so uh, he's done his time, and, and he's, he's rebuilding his life. And um, So I've had my trauma therapist on who's, who helped me do that graphic narrative I described earlier. Um, if anybody's interested, her name's uh, Dr. Lee Norton uh, out of Franklin, uh, Tennessee, if you want to look her up. Um, so doing podcasts and then I get to, uh, this is, this is really exciting. Like you and I talked about before the show started drug free workplace program. Yeah. Such an honor. You know, I'm working in the workplace. I'm working in corporate America for Dave Ramsey, the, the, you know, financial guru guy who's got a radio show and he fires me. You know, it's a Christian organization and I'm calling churches, um, kind of out of my mind, uh, uh, on, on a bunch of pills and I get called into his office and he says, look, I, I can't help you, but I can let you go. So you can go get the help that you need. And so one of the regrets that I had was I didn't have a pamphlet. I didn't have a place to go when he says, you need to go get help. I didn't know where to turn. So it took me months to kind of figure out what do I do next. And um, so now I'm able to go into uh, companies and give them a resource and share my story and train their people on you know what to look for in the workplace. If somebody is you know struggling, either that they're working next to or somebody at home. A lot of people, it's you know they're dealing with stuff at home. And I can kind of give them things to look for. And now, now they have a resource in addiction campuses and and, and following me on social media um, to turn to when they do have a question and uh, something does come up where you know they do need help. <clears throat> yeah, and then awesome, lastly, man. lastly, what I'd like to uh, plug is um, Ray Luzier, the drummer for Corn, his wife uh, Aspen. So we box together. Uh, another big thing, a part of my recovery program is uh, is physical fitness. Hmm. Even though I have one leg, I, I don't make excuses for it. Uh, I go and I do boxing um, three or four times a week, and it's been such a huge release for me, such a good outlet for me. And so I've friended uh, Ray's wife, uh, Aspen. Long story short, she started hearing about my story by me sharing openly. She started sharing a little bit about her story. Now we have started, she has started um, a, a nonprofit called Rebel for a Change. Hmm. Rebel for a Change. All you do, all we have right now is a landing page and a donation button online. And what it is is uh, this thing's about to get really big, and they have some amazing, you know, contacts and resources uh, to help this uh, nonprofit get really big really quickly. <clears throat> but what it does is it serves to help support families struggling with addiction. She's the daughter of an addict, and so she never really felt supported as a family member of somebody suffering, because a lot of times the person suffering gets help. Yeah. But yeah. the fam- but the family's left to kind of just like fend for themselves, and so um, in, in a uh, kind of uh, in the mindset of kind of a, I am second, uh, we're going to be starting, well, we're starting to create some videos and getting, uh, what we call rebels, people who have been through a bunch of crap, uh, as a family yeah. member of an addict or an alcoholic. Um, and we're going to start putting their stories on video. Um, uh, she's scoping out right now as we're having this conversation, she's scoping out the space for, um, for the new kind of intro video that we're going to be doing, uh, awesome. to talk about our mission. So if anybody's interested in supporting, uh, go and drop in a dollar or two into rebel for a change. Uh, you can look that up. Um, Instagram, Facebook, uh, online, and uh, that's sweet. And, I, and so I'm on, the, I, I'm on the board. So to be asked to be on a board of directors of an organization, you know, compared to where I was two or three years ago, is just just a, a true blessing. And yeah. just a, it's just a God doing for me what I can't do for myself. 
Yeah, it's amazing what, what getting sober can do for us, you know, because I just find, too, that it's so much less about my drinking and just so much more about making myself available and being willing and not being a dumbass. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I mean, it's just, man, I, it's, it's, it's absolutely life-changing, man, and I'm with you. Like, I, I can't believe it sometimes either, man. But I, I really appreciate you, John, coming on today and uh, sharing your story and um and and uh, just being on the show and just getting to chat with you man it's been a real real honor man i appreciate it it's an honor thank you if anybody wants to anything i said resonated with you you want to reach out i'm uh, john clint mabry on all you know twitter facebook instagram john clint mabry c-l-i-n-t-m-a-b-r-y so feel free to right reach on, out man. to me Right on, John. Thanks again, man. Thanks for uh, thanks of you out there for listening today. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, thank you to our sponsors: I Am Sober App, Foundations Recovery Network, Sober Nation. Um, hope you guys have a phenomenal rest of the week. Peace, love, respect. Keep your blood clean.